boycotts, downvoting, negative reviews, callouts on social media, cancelling. The power of the consumer is arguably stronger than it has ever been, ever since the internet came and removed the gatekeepers that prevented the companies that took our money from hearing our voices. But the internet is a relatively new thing, as is its effects. However, the agreements, disagreements, expectations, pleasures and disappointments from purchasing and interacting with companies who take our money is not new. And as such, the concept of the consumer resisting, or consumers having power, has some long, deeply held and entrenched ideas about it. So this episode of A Culture Made of Algorithms, we're going to take a look at these ideas, look at how they impact our media consumption, the cultures they have produced and societies left behind as we look at consumer power. Salutations, listener. Welcome to this week's episode of A Culture Made of Algorithms. I'm Omar Aline, and this podcast takes a look at our media consumption, the culture it produces, and the societies left behind. This week's episode comes off the back of even more conversations about cancel culture, something which I won't discuss in any depth here because my thoughts on the topic already exist on an episode before and with tech. But this episode is more about fulfilling my promise to revisit the power structure between people and organisations who want their capital. In fact, it's something I touched on lightly with a previous episode with Jay Richards and Kat Agostino, who both alluded to the growing influence of Gen Z have with companies because their consumptive power is changing how audiences see companies because of those callouts. But what is the academic framework around this idea that consumers have any sort of power? Am I spreading unsubstantiated claims or are there examples of consumers having power that exist within our society already? And if they do, what do they look like? So to answer these, I'm going to be citing one of my favourite books on the topic, Media Studies and Approaches by Dan Lauhi and his chapter on consumer power, starting with our first concept, the two-step flow model. Now, the two-step flow model is what Lauhi identifies as a way in which media is passed to us through the filter of respected and expert opinion. Identified by Elihu Katz and Paul Laserfield in Personal Influence from 1955, the two-step flow model argues that facts and ideas are seen as evenly weighted by media producers who target or directly send their content to opinion leaders in local communities. These people can be teachers, doctors, reviewers, dentists, religious leaders, parents, barbers, yes, barbers, <laughs> cab drivers, and that list can go on. Now, these people are called opinion leaders. Then these people then tell us, the general public, their opinions on a text, and in turn, that shapes the wider cultural attitude towards that product. And whilst we're not in 1955, sorry, time travellers, you need to go back a little bit further, Opinion leaders are still here and still exist in our society and culture today. Also, what's amazing about the role of the opinion leader is a two-step flow model is that anyone can be an opinion leader as long as they have an opinion and an audience who will take their lead. And you might be able to guess where this is going because in the internet age, the role of the opinion leader has been reforged into the role of influencer, people who are paid by producers to promote products as well as reviewers who are paid to review and unbox products for infotainment. I put all of those in quotation marks. I put them in quotation marks because all of those words and phrases are heavily coded and there are questions about authenticity in all of them. Can you unbox a product as if you're surprised when you've put it, when you've taken it out to look at it to know how you do it and then put it back in the box to then record? Another one is, can you truly review something independently and impartially if you're being paid by a producer? 
I think you can, but there's definitely an element of control that we talked about last week in, in ownership and exploitation, but also how influencers is a very interesting term when lots of influencers have been caught out many times for buying likes from bots and therefore they're not really influencing anyone or anything, but they're getting the numbers and they're generating the numbers as if they are influencing people. That doesn't mean that there aren't people doing all of this authentically, um, but for sake of argument for now, I put them in quotation marks. Now, outside of the paid online influencer and deliberately excluding the celebrity endorsement, the two-step flow model is something I've spoken about in previous episodes, given mention to how parents and family members have impacted our musical tastes and have served as gatekeepers for us to experience new things. It might go on to explain why the two-step flow model, which is also known as the limited effects approach in media studies, is so key in supporting ideas that would conform to our confirmation biases. As outlined by Joseph Clapper's essay, the effects of mass communication in 1960. But why would listening to opinion leaders feed into our confirmation bias? Well, typically, our personal opinion leaders are people who have already shaped our opinions, and thus, when they share a text with us and their opinion, we have a predisposition to like it. Now, what's great about this concept is that it pitches the consumer base as something mediated and well-informed, with people who have trusted opinions being given the platform to shape public discourse and as such are great people who make up sample sizes to see if others will like something. It's perhaps why social media algorithms model this behaviour already. Twitter is happy to show you the likes of people you frequently interact with, but more interestingly, YouTube models this concept exactly with its own platform. For example, if you watch a video by a content creator you watch regularly and they mention or link a video in the description, there's a chance that YouTube will recognise this and will make that video the next in the autoplayer. The practicality of this model has been gamed by marketers, however, because they know you are likely to enjoy the content enjoyed by people you enjoy and respect, and as such, they will regularly ask these people to endorse their products. This therefore becomes the basis of what we know to be the social media influencer. But this isn't new. Previously, adverts would do that. X percent of dentists agree that this toothpaste is best toothpaste. So even if you don't think the toothpaste model works or affects you, I hope that you can at least be able to see how it is employed in the content around you. But speaking on being used, the second theory, uses and gratifications theory, is something similar. What's different here is that where the two-step model slash limited effects model saw our opinions being filtered and shaped by others, the uses and gratifications theory is the case made for us when we discover and use media for ourselves. In this concept, what is argued here is that people use the media to satiate a human need, a bit like how people eat a meal to satiate hunger. And on-demand video services like the aforementioned YouTube and Netflix work as well as music streaming platforms like Spotify, in turn give credibility to this theory. Because to access the text on these platforms, you have to intentionally select which piece of content you wish to consume. This podcast is a perfect example of that. However, this theory was created way before on-demand platforms were even thought to exist, but it still works because the specificity of the content does not matter in the uses and gratifications theory, only the choice to consume does. This is because the theory is an extension of Maslow's needs and motivations theory, which we might better know as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a triangle which places our need to eat, drink, sleep and excrete at the bottom and desire to be the best we can be right at the top of that pyramid. The uses and gratifications theory makes the case that by using media in a way that we want, we satiate a psychological desire. As such, our power as consumers is only to choose content that we want to consume, forcing producers to make more of it or we will not watch it or consume it. 
However, what is also contested here is the question of what is actually a human need, which poses some problems because everyone is left arguing about what these needs are, and therefore, depending on that list, media and media use and consumption cannot satiate every need, unfortunately. But speaking of problems, consumer resistance is our third theory that we're going to look at today, and it's all about audiences telling producers the problem with their texts, and as such, it's probably the most obvious form of consumer resistance. It's a personal favourite of mine too, because an audience usually has a number of hilarious ways of telling producers that their content fell flat, that it just didn't slap, it wasn't it. Now, this theory was made popular by a media scholar called John Fisk, and Fisk argues in Understanding Popular Culture from 1989 that there are two ways consumers can resist media products. The first is through financial means, and this works because audiences are seen as commodities by media producers. Now, financial resistance can come in a variety of ways, the most obvious being to simply not buy a product that is on sale. Financial resistance can be through pirating or replicating a product rather than purchasing it too. Now, these all might seem like the same thing, but when you consider the difference in boycotting a product versus stealing it, you realise that there is a difference in perceived value to the customer. And in one of those instances, the audience does not want the product at all, versus the other where they see the product and has value and are either unable to purchase it at its value or do not see it worth its retail market value, and thus they either replicate it or steal it. This is where the second form of resistance comes in, cultural resistance. Now, cultural resistance is a little bit harder to quantify and define. However, what Fisk identifies is that cultural resistance comes when the audience plays with the meanings of a media text. And we can see this online in the form of fan theories, texts made by audiences who dissect a product and attempt to find deeper meaning than what can be found in its surface level interpretation. In a cultural resistance, what differs here is that the audience is not a commodity, but is instead a collective made of individuals which form an audience. Lau He identifies Madonna as a form of popular cultural resistance because her fans can identify with the deliberately subversive feminist and non-heterosexual imagery within her texts. In turn, fans can see Madonna as a figurehead that erodes patriarchal structures and heteronormative perspectives which might oppress them as women and members of the LGBT community. In a more contemporary context though, financial and cultural resistance is perhaps commonly misunderstood to be seen as a cancel culture. A set of behaviours which sees an audience reject a media producer and all their work because of what it contains. In actuality, this would be no different than people review bombing The Rise of Skywalker or learning that Halle Berry's Catwoman movie was so bad they just don't want to watch it or being suspicious of any new M. Night Shyamalan project after watching Avatar. However, an arguably more obvious way of exercising consumer resistance can be found in the platforms that allow audiences to be heard by media producers. This means platforms such as Rotten Tomatoes, TripAdvisor and Google Reviews are just as valid in their consumer resistive powers as platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and dedicated web forums. In this case, both written reviews which reflect opinion almost exactly, and simplified positive versus negative metric aggregates are equally as valid when attempting to assess how resistant an audience has been to a media text. And I'm sure there is a fun and interesting segment to move into this fourth and final segment, but I can't really think of one right now. So here we go. Number four, media literacy. Now, media literacy is one of those concepts I hold close to my heart. In fact, once upon a time, I was going to make an entire episode about the importance of being media literate, but I didn't really think that was fun, and this podcast can be pretty boring already. Now, media literacy might sound like it is based in the ideas of being able to read and write, and in fact, it kind of is. However, it is more about the second definition of literacy, 
to be competent or to have knowledge in a specified area. As such, media literacy is defined as a field of study that gives one the ability to analyse, evaluate, create and act using all forms of communication. It is a field that is concerned with a number of questions such as what is the type of content being absorbed and how did you come across it? Did you make sense of the intended message? Are you aware that each message was created by someone with their own goals and opinions? When you make a post, what is your duty to the people who consume it? And lastly, what do you do with that information? As such, media literacy covers topics such as how the media has an impact on the human mind, what role money plays in the creation of media texts, how media texts can be created to influence and or persuade audiences, how authentic online advertisements are, how can someone fact check, what is lateral reading, how do people decide who to trust, how does someone evaluate evidence. How can someone interpret data on infographics? How can someone exercise click restraint? As such, media literacy can take and be useful in many forms. Media literacy can be the ability to know if a website is fake or is untrustworthy. Media literacy is to know whether or not a newspaper source is reliable. Media literacy is the ability to fact check the information you see online or in print. So how does media literacy become an act of consumer power? Well, to oversimplify, Media literacy works by enabling consumers as individuals to be able to discern for themselves what it is that they're looking at and to evaluate its value. By giving people this skill, they're able to make intelligent decisions and come to accurate conclusions about what is being presented. So when an audience is presented with a truthful artifact and a false one, the individuals within that audience can react accordingly. In turn, this makes false text harder to disseminate because individuals within the audience have the ability to debunk or reject that information based on its value. Now at times, I question if media literacy truly goes hand in hand with things such as consumer resistance and cultural capital, rather than extending out as a concept by itself. However, when you understand that people can reject texts on their intended meanings based on reasons other than their comprehension or value of the text, then it becomes clear that the understanding of the text is a separate realm of resistance and an additional layer of filtration between the audience and the media producer. There is, however, a fine line between being a media literate and falling into your own confirmation biases. For example, I can disregard a story in the Daily Mail because I'm aware it's framing and attempts to drive a narrative. But if the facts within it are true, then my literacy will allow me to understand the topic yet disregard the constructed narrative. On the other hand, disregarding all information from that source before assessing the quality or validity of that information is not always an example of someone being media literate, but can instead be an example of someone leaning into their confirmation biases. Quite often though, we see and can see evidence of media literacy being used on social media in the form of information being shared, critiqued and examined in the public sphere. I think an amazing case study to look at is during the 2019 election cycle, the Conservative government was caught changing the name of the government's communications headquarters at GCHQ and its press arm. In this case study, what they did was change that account to Fact Checker during the leaders' televised debate in November 2019. In response to this clear and obvious sleight of hand technique to sway public opinion during a quite pivotal debate, Twitter users quickly highlighted and screenshotted evidence that the account had changed. When the 48 hours after the debate, this made news headlines when the fact check account returned to its status as GCHQ Press, which is Twitter account. And in fact, more recently and more painfully, we've seen the case of Wiley's anti-Semitic tweets being misconstrued when people who don't understand the content attempt to use unverified and unreliable sources to debate points being made. 
in one instance we saw someone use a highly contested definition from urban dictionary about holding corn to make an interpretation that Wiley was inciting violence. However, what quickly became apparent was that those who were familiar with the language being used and had used it themselves were very much aware that the highly contested view was not reflective of the language that they used. More interestingly, media literacy would have allowed the person to see that the website was not regionalised to the UK and its highly contested view meant that it may not have been well received when published online as evidence. So what are the behaviours of consumption, the produced cultures and abandoned societies we found in this episode? Well, once again, that's a little bit harder to kind of crunch the numbers on because our consumptive practices today aren't easily quantified within the topic of consumer power. However, what is apparent is that consumers today still have varying degrees of agency. This agency acts as filters that can make us proactive in the consumption or passive but in none of these forms of consumption, whether that's active or passive, is media illiteracy excused. As such, our resistance to a text can be personal, deeply emotional and or intellectual, because all our forms of resistance and are equally valid as the outcomes are the same. So we can resist with our spending power. We can resist with our voices, our words, our actions. And as such, it's always been a part of our culture and society to resist products we don't like, media or otherwise. So in truth, we've actually come up to one of the rare occasions where no one's been left behind things are just adapted a little bit more to accommodate us and our behaviors in the internet age i mean don't like how tangy those tangerines are from the greengrocer well i doubt you'll buy them again and i doubt you'll tell others to buy them in fact you might even tell them to avoid them if they don't want tangy tangerines that's the same rules that we do when we don't like a movie a tv show a book a piece of art games albums you know that list goes on and on so this week's questions on the twitter poll will be what is your favourite way to exercise consumer power? Who are the influencers in your life? Which need does the media you consume satiate the most? Are you worried about your level of media literacy? To answer these, you can go to www.twitter.com slash acmoapod or like what most people do, you can find me as at acmoapod on Twitter. If you are unable to take part but still want to take part in the poll, you are more than welcome to email me your responses to a coach made of algorithms at gmail.com your answers will be responded to in the episode 10 season finale like we did last season but we're still four episodes away from that though and next week i shall talk about shock algorithms and how you can play your part in getting upset when you don't exercise click restraint which we just hinted at earlier do you like you like how i keep doing these things where i go oh i mentioned one little thing and then next week we're rolling on but anyway yeah uh, you can call it my victim blaming episode if you want but until then keep consuming keep thinking about the culture you're a part of and who you're leaving behind but make sure to stay safe while doing it take care see you around